Section five The Story of Atlantis by William Scott Elliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Story of Atlantis, Part five. Education. A few words on the subject of language will fitly prelude a consideration of the training in the schools and colleges of Atlantis. During the first map period, Toltec was the universal language not only throughout the continent but in the western islands and that part of the eastern continent which recognized the emperor's rule remains of the Moahal and Tlavatli speech survived it is true in out-of-the-way parts just as the celtic and cumric speech survives to-day among us in ireland and wales the Tlavatli tongue was the basis used by the turanians who introduced such modifications that an entirely different language was in time produced while the semites and akkadians adopting a toltec groundwork modified it in their respective ways and so produced two divergent varieties thus in the later days of poseidonis there were several entirely different languages all however belonging to the agglutinative type for it was not till fifth race days that the descendants of the semites and akkadians developed inflectional speech all through the ages however the toltec language fairly maintained its purity and the same tongue that was spoken in atlantis in the days of its splendor was used with but slight alteration thousands of years later in mexico and peru the schools and colleges of atlantis in the great toltec days as well as in subsequent eras of culture were all endowed by the state though every child was required to pass through the primary schools the subsequent training differed very widely the primary schools formed a sort of winnowing ground those who showed real aptitude for study were along with the children of the dominant classes who naturally had greater abilities drafted into the higher schools at about the age of twelve reading and writing which were regarded as mere preliminaries had already been taught them in the primary schools but reading and writing were not considered necessary for the great masses of the inhabitants who had to spend their lives in tilling the land or in handicrafts the practice of which was required by the community the great majority of the children therefore were at once passed on to the technical schools best suited to their various abilities chief among these were the agricultural schools some branches of mechanics also formed part of the training while in outlining districts and by the seaside hunting and fishing were naturally included and so the children all received the education or training which was most appropriate for them the children of superior abilities who as we have seen had been taught to read and write had a much more elaborate education the properties of plants and their healing qualities formed an important branch of study there were no recognized physicians in those days every educated man knew more or less of medicine as well as of magnetic healing chemistry mathematics and astronomy were also taught the training in such studies finds its analogy among ourselves but the object towards which the teacher's efforts were mainly directed was the development of the pupil's psychic faculties and his instruction in the more hidden forces of nature the occult properties of plants metals and precious stones as well as the alchemical processes of transmutation were included in this category but as time went on it became more and more the personal power which bulwer lighton calls real and the operation of which he has fairly accurately described in his coming race that the colleges for the higher training of the youth of atlantis were specially occupied in developing the marked change which took place when the decadence of the race set in was that instead of merit and aptitude being regarded as warrants for advancement to the higher grades of instruction 
the dominant classes becoming more and more exclusive allowed none but their own children to graduate in the higher knowledge which gave so much power in such an empire as the toltec agriculture naturally received much attention not only were the laborers taught their duties in technical schools but colleges were established in which the knowledge necessary for carrying out experiments in the crossing both of animals and plants was taught to feeding students as readers of theosophic literature may know wheat was not evolved on this planet at all it was the gift of the manu who brought it from another globe outside our chain of worlds but oats and some of our other cereals are the results of crosses between wheat and the indigenous grasses of the earth now the experiments which gave these results were carried out in the agricultural schools of atlantis of course such experiments were guided by high knowledge but the most notable achievement to be recorded of the atlantean agriculturists was the evolution of the plantain or banana in the original wild state it was like an elongated melon with scarcely any pulp but full of seeds as a melon is it was of course only by centuries even thousands of years of continuous selection and elimination that the present seedless plant was evolved among the domesticated animals of the toltec days were creatures that looked like very small tapers they naturally fed upon roots or herbage but like the pigs of to-day which they resembled in more than one particular they were not over cleanly and ate whatever came in their way large cat-like animals and the wolf-like ancestors of the dog might also be met about human habitations the toltec carts appeared to have been drawn by creatures somewhat resembling small camels the peruvian llamas of to-day are probably their descendants the ancestors of the irish elk too roamed in herds about the hillsides in much the same way as our highland cattle do now too wild to allow of easy approach but still under the control of man constant experiments were made in breeding and cross-breeding different kinds of animals and curious though it may seem to us artificial heat was largely used to force their development so that the results of crossing and interbreeding might be more quickly apparent the use too of different colored lights in the chambers where such experiments were carried on were adopted in order to obtain varying results this control and moulding at will by man of the animal forms brings us to a rather startling and very mysterious subject reference has been made above to the work done by the manus now it is in the mind of the manu that originates all improvements in type and the potentialities latent in every form of being in order to work out in detail the improvements in the animal forms the help and cooperation of man were required the amphibian and reptile forms which then abounded had about run their course and were ready to assume the more advanced type of bird or mammal these forms constituted the inchoate material placed at man's disposal and the clay was ready to assume whatever shape the potter's hand might mould it into it was specially with animals in the intermediate stage that so many of the experiments above referred to were tried and doubtless the domesticated animals like the horse which are now of such service to man are the result of these experiments in which the men of those days acted in cooperation with the manu and his ministers but the cooperation was too soon withdrawn selfishness obtained the upper hand and war and discord brought the golden age of the toltecs to a close when instead of working loyally for a common end under the guidance of their initiate kings men began to prey upon each other the beasts which might gradually have assumed 
under the care of man more and more useful and domesticated forms being left to the guidance of their own instincts naturally followed the example of their monarch and began to prey upon each other some indeed had actually already been trained and used by men in their hunting expeditions and thus the semi-domesticated cat-like animals above referred to naturally became the ancestors of the leopards and jaguars one illustration of what some may be tempted to call a fantastic theory though it may not elucidate the problem will at least point the moral contained in this supplement to our knowledge regarding the mysterious manner in which our evolution has proceeded the lion it would appear might have had a gentler nature and a less fierce aspect had the men of those days completed the task that was given them to perform whether or not he is fated eventually to lie down with a lamb and eat straw like the ox the destiny in store for him as pictured in the mind of the manu has not yet been realized for the picture was that of a powerful but domesticated animal a strong level-backed creature with large intelligent eyes intended to act as man's most powerful servant for purposes of traction the city of the golden gates and its surroundings must be described before we come to consider the marvellous system by which its inhabitants were supplied with water it lay as we have seen on the east coast of the continent close to the sea and about fifteen degrees north of the equator a beautifully wooded park-like country surrounded the city scattered over a large area of this were the villa residences of the wealthier classes to the west lay a range of mountains from which the water supply of the city was drawn the city itself was built on the slopes of a hill which rose from the plain about five hundred feet on the summit of this hill lay the emperor's palace and gardens in the centre of which welled up from the earth a never-ending stream of water supplying first the palace and the fountains in the gardens thence flowing in the four directions and falling in cascades into a canal or a moat which encompassed the palace grounds and thus separated them from the city which lay below on every side from this canal four channels led the water through four quarters of the city to cascades which in their turn supplied another encircling canal at a lower level there were three such canals forming concentric circles the outermost and lowest of which was still above the level of the plain a fourth canal at this lowest level but on the rectangular plain received the constantly flowing waters and in its turn discharged them into the sea the city extended over part of the plain up to the edge of this great outermost moat which surrounded and defended it with a line of waterways extending about twelve miles by ten miles square it will thus be seen that the city was divided into three great belts each hemmed in by its canals the characteristic feature of the upper belt that lay just below the palace grounds was a circular race-course and large public gardens most of the houses of the court officials also lay on this belt and here also was an institution of which we have no parallel in modern times the term strangers home amongst us suggests a mean appearance and sordid surroundings but this was a palace where all strangers who might come to the city were entertained as long as they might choose to stay being treated all the time as guests of the government the detached houses of the inhabitants and the various temples scattered throughout the city occupied the other two belts in the days of the toltec greatness there seems to have been no real poverty even the retinue of slaves attached to most houses being well fed and clothed 
but there were a number of comparatively poor houses in the lowest belt to the north as well as outside the outermost canal towards the sea the inhabitants of this part were mostly connected with the shipping and their houses though detached were built closer together than in other districts it will be seen from the above that the inhabitants had thus a never-failing supply of pure clear water constantly coursing through the city while the upper belts and the emperor's palace were protected by lines of moats each one at a higher level as the centre was approached now it does not require much mechanical knowledge in order to realize how stupendous must have been the works needed to provide this supply for in the days of its greatness the city of the golden gates embraced within its four circles of moats over two million inhabitants no such system of water supply has ever been attempted in greek roman or modern times indeed it is very doubtful whether our ablest engineers even at the expenditure of untold wealth could produce such a result a description of some of its leading features will be of interest it was from a lake which lay among the mountains to the west of the city at an elevation of about two thousand six hundred feet that the supply was drawn the main aqueduct which was of oval section measuring fifty feet by thirty feet led underground to an enormous heart-shaped reservoir this lay deep below the palace in fact at the very base of the hill on which the palace and the city stood from this reservoir a perpendicular shaft of about five hundred feet up through the solid rock gave passage to the water which welled up in the palace grounds and thence was distributed throughout the city various pipes from the central reservoir also led to different parts of the city to supply drinking water and the public fountains systems of sluices of course also existed to control or cut off the supply of the different districts from the above it will be apparent to anyone possessed of some little knowledge of mechanics that the pressure in the subterranean aqueduct and the central reservoir from which the water naturally rose to the basin in the palace gardens must have been enormous and the resisting power of the material used in their construction consequently prodigious if the system of water supply in the city of the golden gates was wonderful the atlantean methods of locomotion must be recognized as still more marvellous for the airship or flying machine which keeley in america and maxim in this country are now attempting to produce was then a realized fact it was not at any time a common means of transport the slaves the servants and the masses who laboured with their hands had to trudge along the country tracks or travel in rude carts with solid wheels drawn by uncouth animals the air-boats may be considered as the private carriages of those days or rather the private yachts if we regard the relative number of those who possessed them for they must have been at all times difficult and costly to produce they were not as a rule built to accommodate many persons numbers were constructed for only two some allowed for six or eight passengers in the later days when war and strife had brought the golden age to an end battleships that could navigate the air had to a great extent replaced the battleships at sea having naturally proved far more powerful engines of destruction these were constructed to carry as many as fifty and in some cases even up to a hundred fighting men the material of which the airboats were constructed was either wood or metal the earlier ones were built of wood 
the boards used being exceedingly thin but the injection of some substance which did not add materially to the weight while it gave leather-like toughness provided the necessary combination of lightness and strength when metal was used it was generally an alloy two white colored metals and one red one entering into its composition the resultant was white colored like aluminium and even lighter in weight over the rough framework of the airboat was extended a large sheet of this metal which was then beaten into shape and electrically welded where necessary but whether built of metal or wood their outside surface was apparently seamless and perfectly smooth and they shone in the dark as if coated with luminous paint in shape they were boat-like but they were invariably decked over for when at full speed it could not have been convenient even if safe for any on board to remain on the upper deck their propelling and steering gear could be brought into use at either end but the all-interesting question is that relating to the power by which they were propelled in the earlier times it seems to have been personal vril that supplied the motive power whether used in conjunction with any mechanical contrivance matters not much but in the later days this was replaced by a force which though generated in what is to us an unknown manner operated nevertheless through definite mechanical arrangements this force though not yet discovered by science more nearly approached that which keely in america is learning to handle than the electric power used by maxim it was in fact of an etheric nature but though we are none nearer to the solution of this problem its method of operation can be described the mechanical arrangements no doubt differed somewhat in different vessels the following description is taken from an airboat in which on one occasion three ambassadors from the king who ruled over the northern part of poseidonis made the journey to the court of the southern kingdom a strong heavy metal chest which lay in the centre of the boat was a generator thence the force flowed through two large flexible tubes to either end of the vessel as well as through eight subsidiary tubes fixed fore and aft to the bulwarks these had double openings pointing vertically both up and down when the journey was about to begin the valves of the eight bulwark tubes which pointed downwards were opened all the other valves being closed the current rushing through this impinged on the earth with such force as to drive the boat upwards while the air itself continued to supply the necessary fulcrum when sufficient elevation was reached the flexible tube at that end of the vessel which pointed away from the desired destination was brought into action while by the partial closing of the valves the current rushing through the eight vertical tubes was reduced to the small amount required to maintain the elevation reached the great volume of current being now directed through the large tube pointing downwards from the stern at an angle of about forty five degrees while helping to maintain the elevation provided also the great motive power to propel the vessel through the air the steering was accomplished by the discharge of the current through this tube for the slightest change in its direction at once caused an alteration in the vessel's course but constant supervision was not required when a long journey had to be taken the tube could be fixed so as to need no handling till the destination was almost reached the maximum speed attained was about one hundred miles an hour the course of flight never being a straight line but always in the form of long waves now approaching and now receding from the earth the elevation at which the vessels travelled was only a few hundred feet 
indeed when high mountains lay in the line of the track it was necessary to change their course and go round them the more rarefied air no longer supplying the necessary fulcrum hills of about one thousand feet were the highest they could cross the means by which the vessel was brought to a stop on reaching its destination and this could be done equally well in mid-air was to give escape to some of the current force through the tube at that end of the boat which pointed towards its destination and the current impinging on the land or air in front acted as a drag while the propelling force behind was gradually reduced by the closing of the valve the reason has still to be given for the existence of the eight tubes pointing upwards from the bulwarks these had more especially to do with the aerial warfare having so powerful a force at their disposal the warships naturally directed the current against each other now this was up to destroy the equilibrium of the ship so struck and to turn it upside down a situation sure to be taken advantage of by the enemy's vessel to make an attack with her ram there was also the further danger of being precipitated to the ground unless the shutting and opening of the necessary valves were quickly attended to in whatever position the vessel might be the tubes pointing downwards the earth were naturally those through which the current should be rushing while the tubes pointing upwards should be closed the means by which a vessel turned upside down might be righted and placed again on a level keel was accomplished by using the four tubes pointing downwards at one side of the vessel only while the four at the other side were kept closed the atlanteans had also sea-going vessels which were propelled by some power analogous to that above mentioned but the current force which was eventually found to be most effective in this case had a denser appearance than that used in the airboats end of section five